Can you do us a new bus telegraph sting? There you go. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 159 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and just this week I discovered my husband went to college with Holly Willoughby. I mean, you think you know a person. I'm confused now about how old Holly Willoughby is. Everyone is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy and apologies if you read this on Twitter already. But on Friday, I kicked a sock off my foot into the washing machine from across the kitchen. And I don't understand why nobody's been on the phone to recruit me for the national squad. Incredible scenes. What a mystery that Southgate wasn't immediately blowing up your phone. He had other things on his mind on Friday, I imagine. That's true. It was actually during the game, which is why I think that that there's the only possible reason why Twitter didn't go mad over that tweet. Because I, I can't explain it clearly enough. I kicked... A sock off my foot into a wash from across the kitchen. It's impressive. There was no one there to see it. I was like, yay, Peggy, celebrate. And she looked entirely ambivalent by it. Did you shout? Did you put your T-shirt over your head and like run around the kitchen going, go, let's go. <laughs> no, no, but I really should have. If I ever manage to replicate it again, I would definitely do that. Instantly, every bath time when I take off Lyra's dirty nappy, put it in a little nappy bag and throw it into the bin from standing in the bathroom that is I always shout go Lacho when I um, score a goal as it were and she always goes (laughs) (laughs) what's your hit rate Uh, it's about 98% I'd say Wow. But it is a very short distance between (laughs) my door the doorway where I'm sitting to do it and the I'd say it's about a metre and a half and and how much spatter from that 2% missing it's in a little bag Bad for the environment, good for the walls. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and that brief respite from misery was short-lived, wasn't it? You okay, hon? What's wrong? I'm just bored. I'm yeah. bored of COVID. Yeah. I'm bored of the weather. Just, you know, it just felt like for about a week, things were nice, and then they're just shit again. Agree? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Later on, I chat to the awesome Dr. Sue Black about computer science, why it's good to be at least a bit informed about this witchcraft, and how her new podcast, A Hundred Moments That Rocked Computer Science, can help you do just that. Ahead of tomorrow's referendum, I chat to Kaylee Linares from Gibraltar for Yes about their hopes for changing one of the harshest laws in Europe, currently punishable by life imprisonment for the person acquiring the abortion and anyone assisting them. So, vote yes please, please people. (laughs) Vote yes please. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking about Team GB and exciting Olympic news. And in Rated or Dated, we watch 1991's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and decide whether we need to gouge our eyes out with a spoon. Why a spoon? Because it's dull, you twit. It'll hurt more. Oh, Alan. But first, flying high, scraping the barrel, and not hitting the bottle. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. And this week, inspired by GB News, we're going to be taking a few opinions from our audience. So I've got something here from Fanny Fuller O'Dick, one of our (laughs) Irish listeners, obviously. I obviously saw some stuff about the launch of 
GB News last week. None of it looked good, to be fair. I'm not sure I necessarily understand that that reference, though. Because everyone's just rung them up with opinions and yeah. comedy names. And whoever <laughs> should be filtering them out isn't filtering them out. There's loads of stuff circulating on Twitter of them having things where uh, pe- people called Mike Hunt have called in or people <laughs> called Cleo Taurus have called in, um, you know, Seymour Butts. It's just, it's ridiculous. The production values are as low as they could possibly be. It's it's lovely to see. I wrote about it in the Bush Telegram this week and I have not watched it. But yeah, from a technical point of view, they were live from Newscastle. I mean, that's pretty simple. Just get people to read them. So either they haven't got enough staff or, you know, they haven't got the right staff. What? Because it's all very well having big names, but, you know, like Andrew Neil, but you need to have someone who checks that captions are spelt correctly. Yeah, you really do. Anyway. The UK government has apologised for systemic failings after the publication of its review of the criminal justice system's handling of rape cases in England and Wales. We've spoken about this on the podcast before, and indeed, the fact that suspects were charged in just 3% of rape cases in England and Wales in 2019 to 2020 is not new information or that just two-thirds of those ended in conviction. And I probably don't need to do the maths for you, but that is 2%, guys. Jesus. Yeah, but actually, one of the other stats, that 57% of victims withdrew their complaints, I think is perhaps equally telling. In its report, the government stated that rape cases need to be investigated and prosecuted, and I quote, professionally, diligently and with empathy, ensuring that victims of this awful crime get the support that they deserve. And it added that the rape review has found that in too many cases, this simply does not happen. The government acknowledged that while there had been little change in the number of incidents of rape and sexual violence in the last five years, there had been a decline in charges, prosecutions and convictions and said these are trends of which we are deeply ashamed. It promised to step up, to do better and deliver lasting improvements to the way that rape cases are investigated and prosecuted. Great. That sounds like an unequivocal apology, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And something is bound to change as a result, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it is hard not to apologise in the face of those really quite damning statistics, isn't it? So what does the government propose to actually do? Well, it's quite a meaty document and you can find it by just Googling rape review if you'd like to read it all. But here are some of the changes they suggest implementing. Prepare to be blown away, Hannah. They Mm. will publish six monthly progress reports. They'll show ministerial leadership. Seriously, that is one of the actions. Yeah, I mean, that's quite hard to quantify, but okay. (laughs) And also something that they really just should already be doing as a matter of course anyway. And they will make sure that victims submitting their phones for evidence won't be without a phone for more than 24 hours. So that's not even their own phone. That is a phone. These are really, really basic things also things like the recommendation on phones for example that will actually make a tangible difference i think because yeah. I, I do think that is it is massively off-putting in the face of if you even take away like the privacy concerns if someone says to you we literally can't tell you when you will get your phone back and yeah. we're not going to give you one that is actually quite a big deal so i also think that there are safety concerns of a woman who something terrible yeah, has recently happened to who probably hasn't got a landline because who has a landline of course having her phone taken away from her yeah 
as the report itself points out, to be without a phone when you have just gone through a terrible thing and you actually need the support, like that's, mm. it, it, I do think that will make a tangible difference. But how do they propose to achieve this without employing more people? They can't make these things happen quicker if they don't have the people there to actually, you know, enact them. So it's unsurprising to me that the response, which we've waited for for two years, by the way, has been criticised by stakeholders for, as the Centre for Women's Justice puts it, a lack of ambition. Yeah, it seems to me them saying this is a list of things that we should be doing. Great, you know what you should be doing. Well, it'd be quite nice to have a list of things that you are going to to actually do to practically ensure that those things are going to happen. Yeah, agreed. So let's have a little look at the recent comments by Baroness Dido Harding, who last week put herself forward as a candidate for the CEO job at the NHS. Harding, who was made a peer in 2014 by her old Oxford University chum David Cameron and is married to the Tory MP Sir John Penrose, is now one of a number of people vying to succeed Sir Simon Stevens in July. Stevens announced that he was quitting as NHS chief in April, and who can blame him, (laughs) after what can only be described as seven eventful years. Why do I mention her husband like some sort of, shouldn't you be back in the kitchen, love, journalist? Well, it's because he's a board member of the think tank 1828, which has called for the NHS to be replaced by a social insurance system. Hmm. I mean, he sounds nice. No, he sounds like a cunt. (laughs) (laughs) Back to Harding, who has chaired the regulator NHS Improvement since 2017. She made her name in the business world, but is probably best known for Track and Trace, a £37 billion (laughs) operation described by the Sage Advisory Group as having had, quote, a minimal impact on transmission. But that's not on her CV. But why am I talking about her now? Well, at the weekend, the Times reported that Harding had declared that she would end, quote, prevailing orthodoxy in government that it is better to import medical professionals from overseas. Now, according to the House of Commons Library, 170,000 out of 1.3 million NHS staff say their nationality is not British, amounting to about 14% of the workforce. The Health Foundation has said that the NHS needs more staff from overseas, not less. Health services staffing shortages stand at around 100,000 and could grow to 250,000. That's quarter of a fucking million. Yeah. Or more by 2030. In fact, historically, the NHS has never in all its history not depended on overseas workers, be that doctors from India and Pakistan or Windrush nurses. But Harding claims she wants these vacancies to be filled from the UK. I mean, great idea, Dido. Except where are these doctors and nurses going to come from? It currently costs close to £250,000 to train a doctor. And although a lot of the cost of training is borne by the government, supporting yourself for the five years it takes, including paying a share of tuition fees, and that's just five years to become qualified, you then have five years as a junior doctor. That prices a huge proportion of the population out of the training market. Plus, you know, it takes five years. What does Harding perceive as the benefits of the NHS being all UK all the time? Doesn't it all come across as a bit xenophobic? Yes, yes it does. (laughs) To be clear, there is an argument that recruiting from abroad deprives less developed nations of their healthcare workers. But I'm going to go ahead and assume that's 
not Harding's issue. Feel free to correct me, anyone, if you know for a fact that I'm wrong. Also, the point that you've made about doctors and and how much it costs and how long it takes to train. I have a friend who um, recently trained to become a midwife. She'd sort of, you know, retrained, as it were. And I think, I believe it's the same for nurses as well now. You used to get a bursary to cover either your tuition fees or something. I think it was your tuition fees. And they don't do that anymore. So you have to pay for your tuition fees completely, as well as obviously the cost of living. And... You get worked like a fucking dog. Like you are, you're mm-hmm. working a proper job, basically, as a midwife or a nurse or, or whatever. This year in the pandemic, lots of trainees got shifted forward, didn't they? And ended up mm. in hospitals. Yeah. You're basically paying to go to work for the NHS as it stands. I don't know how they're going to get more people to sign up to that and also to know then at the end of it if you when you qualify as a midwife or nurse you're going to get shit pay basically forever so and also the thing i don't understand is a lot of the argument again she's a tory so let's take the tory argument that like immigration needs to be restricted Mm. i mean you know me i'm pretretty much an open borders kind of person (laughs) i i don't care who comes here but if you were going to be ruthlessly logical about it if you have a percentage rate that you're going to hit, it would be better for you uh, economically as a country to take high earners like doctors and nurses. I mean, not that nurses are that high earners, but okay, solidly employable people yeah. than other people. So it doesn't it doesn't even seem to, if you looked at it from a financial perspective, which I would never look at it like, but it mm. doesn't even really make sense there. I don't, just, I don't understand it. It's just populist shit, isn't it, is what it is. Like, yeah. there's no other way to describe it. It's just populist shit playing to fucking yeah. stupid xenophobic yeah. bellends who don't. When my mum had breast cancer, she had two different doctors. One, I'm guessing, was Indian from the name, and that was a man. And then she also had a separate doctor who was a woman who was, again, I'm going to guess Spanish or Portuguese. I didn't ask. You know, they both spoke English with an accent. They cured my mum of cancer. I didn't give a fuck what accent they had. I think even for people who are quite racist, it's only ever used in a hypothetical sense because once you need help, you will take help from wherever it comes. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I think. So, Jen, I want to talk about a couple who were spotted in the Scottish countryside looking for somewhere to live. Mm. These city types, eh? Fleeing the bright lights and pushing up rural house prices with their nest prospecting. Except not, as this is the good news section and the pair are in fact white-tailed eagles spotted at Loch Lomond for the first time in over a century. And their behaviour suggests that they intend to stay. The birds were pushed to extinction in the UK in the early 20th century. God, mankind sucks, doesn't it? But reintroductions have seen them recolonise Scotland, where there are now believed to be more than 150 breeding pairs. Paul Roberts, operations manager of Nature Scott, Scotland's nature agency, if you didn't guess that, (laughs) said, quote, this is the latest chapter in the continuing success story of sea eagle conservation. And what a story that is. Hooray. <laughs> More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. I'm not sure where best to start with this edition of Sexism of the Week. So, Hannah, I'll just ask you a question in the style of Edwin Starr, if that's OK with you. That's fine, yeah. Booze. Huh. Yeah. yeah. 
Who is a good boy? <laughs> Absolutely no women between the ages of about 16 to 50, according to the World Health Organization. Well, look, we could go further than that and say absolutely no one, as Edwin Starr probably would have done himself, um, because I think that that is the generally accepted wisdom, right? So what the chuff is the WHO banging on about? Well, the organisation found itself in hot water last week after a draft alcohol action plan suggested that pregnant women and women of childbearing age should not be drinking alcohol. Okay, pregnant women, got it. This is not new, although there is actually no medical consensus regarding how much alcohol is harmful to an unborn baby. There is no medical consensus, but that consensus mostly exists somewhere between none and a little amount. Yes. Rather than no, none I, as much as you like. Agreed, yes, but, but there is still no actual medical consensus on it. But a woman of childbearing age? That's basically all women between the ages of around 16 to 50, right? Regardless of whether or not they've finished having kids or even wanted to have kids in the first place. A spokesperson for the WHO said the overall objective of WHO's public health work with regard to alcohol is to protect health and prevent health conditions that result from its harmful use. The current draft of WHO's Global Action Plan does not recommend abstinence of all women who are of an age at which they could become pregnant. However, it does seek to raise awareness of the serious consequences that can result from drinking alcohol while pregnant, even when the pregnancy is not yet known. Now, that sounds pretty reasonable, right? But then mm. I would have to ask if that sounds like a reasonable explanation of, and I quote, prevention of drinking among pregnant women and women of childbearing age. It doesn't, does it? Like, those sound like very different things to me. Yeah, I think that when they use prevention in that sense, they're talking about prevention as in, like, trying to get some people to cut it out rather than getting everybody to do it. But yeah, I mean, it's still, yeah. The word prevention is doing a lot of work in that sentence, yeah. So I'm going to let someone who knows way more about this stuff than I do have the final word on this and defer to the British Pregnancy Advisory Service's Chief Executive Claire Murphy, who said, It's extremely disturbing to see the World Health Organisation risk hard-won women's rights by attempting to control their bodies and choices in this way. By treating all women for 40 years of their lives as little more than vessels, the WHO reduces women to little more than their reproductive capabilities. This is interesting because it's really complicated. And when you were off on maternity leave, I spoke to Elsa Clark, who is the mother of a child she adopted who has fetal alcohol syndrome. And much like a lot of mothers of adopted children with FAS, she's had to do quite a lot of research herself because, you know, there's not a lot of stuff available. Alcohol consumption during pregnancy is one of those issues that butts up against feminism and really does butt up against feminism because there are points at which when women are drinking if they suspect they might be pregnant or if they're trying to get pregnant or if you know they are pregnant that it could affect their unborn child and if that woman has decided to go ahead with that pregnancy then that is a consideration that she's going to have to take but women don't like being told that because obviously it's the whole at hand, how it plays into the right to life and all of this stuff and how that you know that if you did have laws about it, they would be abused by people, you know, who wanted to control women's bodies. So it is really complicated. So rather than get my head stuck into that too much, what I will say is what 
Elsa told me, and is correct, and the World Health Organization haven't stated here, is that actually alcohol affects men's fertility and fetal alcohol syndrome can be carried in the sperm. So to say, to direct this entirely at women is actually unfair because men also have the ability to affect whether their child is, uh, unborn child is affected by alcohol. Fun fact. That is very interesting. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Professor Sue Black OBE. This would be a very long intro indeed if I were to list all of her achievements and roles. So let's stick with Sue is Professor of Computer Science at Durham University and host of excellent new podcast, 100 Moments That Rocked Computer Science. And you do that with your sidekick, Gordon Love. It's fair to call him your sidekick, right? (laughs) I don't need to ask him. So, Sue, your passion for computer science and how it can change lives is palpable. How did that start for you and what has it changed in your life? Oh, gosh. Um, Well, how long have you got? It's taken a long time to explain that. I always loved maths. I kind of think back to when I was a kid and I used to save up my pocket money and like at the age of, I don't know, seven or eight, the most exciting thing that I could think of to buy was maths textbooks, like with my pocket money. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so a bit of a geek, I guess, from early on. I didn't realise that that was unusual, only kind of like looking back now, it seems a bit odd or a bit different. But anyway, yeah, so I always loved maths and I kind of was interested in technology I didn't quite know that much about it, really. But I sort of thought computers were really exciting, but I didn't have a lot to do with them, really. And it it wasn't really till I was about 26 when I was trying to go back into education. I'd ended up, unfortunately, becoming a single parent when I was about 24, 25, with three small children, and was then trying to go back into education. I'd left school at 16 because I I was having issues at home. So I left home and school at 16. So then, yeah, so I was going back into education at at 26. And what I did first was I had five O-levels, so I couldn't go straight to uni. So I did a maths course at the local college, Southwark College in London. And then after that, I decided to apply to do a degree in computing. I was kind of like, shall I do maths or computing? But I just thought computing is the future, like technology is the future. So I was very excited about technology. So did a degree and then ended up doing a PhD after that. 20 years ago now, I finished my PhD. So I've had a whole career in in tech, uh, I guess, since then. And just, well, I just absolutely love technology for lots of different reasons. And you really want to share that. There's a real passion to get that love out there and more people falling in love with it. Why do you, why, why? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I I think that technology and understanding how to use technology in so many different ways, for me, it's, you know, it's kind of like when people first learn to learn to read you know like when um, the printing press and so you know suddenly that was widely available to to lots of people to actually be able to read you know to have books and be able to read and I kind of feel it's the same sort of thing happening again with technology if you just understand the basics of technology you know like the kind of stuff that I've done with Tech Mums a social enterprise that I set up in um, 2012 I think where I was just so interested in technology and how if you just understand a few things and and have a certain amount of confidence, it could just make such a massive difference to your life. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd started by doing stuff with kids, so like doing stuff with seven-year-old kids like app design and coding. And, you know, kids were really excited about it. And then 
I was encouraging parents to have a go kind of at the end of the day. And I found that when I was, you know, asking mums and dads to, to have a go at what the kids were doing, I realised that when I said, okay, you know, like it's up to you now, mums and dads, have a look at what your kids are doing. Your kids can show you what they're doing and have a go yourself. And I, and I just noticed that the dads in general just stepped forward and got on with it, whereas some of the mums just looked very apprehensive. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, so maybe I should try and focus on teaching mums tech skills to improve their confidence, to, to help mums get excited about technology, but then also to kind of hopefully have an effect on the kids as well. You know, I really saw through that that teaching mums basic tech skills just made such a massive difference really quickly. And from teaching things like basic app design, basic web design, bit of coding, how to stay safe online and stuff like that, I could just see the mums on the program just, you know, kind of like blossoming as they went through the program, becoming more confident. It can just make such a massive, massive difference to people's lives in general, you know, not just confidence with technology, but also just like general self-esteem. Once you can understand how to do so many things, it just changes your life. Now, when I was listening to the podcast, which we will talk about in detail in a second, the incredible fact came up that you mentioned that when you did your degree, you didn't learn about Ada Lovelace at all. No. (laughs) So... (laughs) Can you talk to me a little bit about women in computer science now and how it is looking now and how that has changed? Sure. So, well, when I did my degree, that was like 1989 to 1993. So it's quite a long time ago now. Well, it's interesting because in 1998, I set up the UK's first online network for women in tech. So I was going to computer science conferences when I was doing my PhD and finding that when so my PhD supervisor was uh, encouraging me to to network as as kind of part of doing my PhD because it's not just what you know but who you know Mm -hmm. so when I was going to academic conferences I found that sometimes when I was trying to network it was mainly talking to guys and it kind of helped me to realize that I was a woman in tech and not just a computer scientist because I had some not so great experiences trying to network basically in fact the first conference I went to I set myself the target of talking to one person like you know that was a a big thing for me because I wasn't used to talking to people I didn't really know so it was my first kind of chance uh, Mm -hmm. first kind of time that I was really seriously trying to network properly I talked to a guy that had given a really good talk and seemed very down to earth so I chatted to him at the end of uh, his presentation for about 15 minutes in the tea break and then for the rest of the conference every time I turned around he was staring at me I got really freaked Mm -hmm. out I didn't know why he was staring at me and I just felt very confused and a bit traumatized like why is this man staring at me all the time and I had some other not so great experiences and it wasn't really until I went to a women in science conference that you know it was the first time that I really realized how amazing it is to kind of be in the majority you know because I was in the 10% probably of women in computer science conferences going to a conference that was all women practically it was just such a massively different experience and it changed my life actually you know I remember walking in and you know, like getting my uh, registering and getting my badge and then going over and, and getting a cup of tea and it was just such a difference to to the conferences that I was used to in that I just walked over to chat to some other people thinking oh god I'm you know I'm not very good at networking I've had some not so great experiences before 
I think I didn't even start talking. Someone started talking to me, you know, like there was another woman started talking to me and then some other women came over and then we all started talking to each other. And for the whole two days, I just had like the most amazing time ever. I didn't have to try and network because everyone was talking to everyone and we were having a great time and sharing experiences. Went out in the evening. I just had two days of the best time ever. I've sort of made lifelong friends from that actually. And, um, you know, like more than 20 years ago, and I came back and set up the UK's first online network for women in tech, BCS Women, because I really wanted to create an online group that where women could just chat to, to each other about technology and to kind of support and encourage each other. I think at that time it was about 20% uh, women in tech and now it's about 20% women in tech. Aww. So it hasn't really, in terms of numbers, it hasn't really changed. But I mean, I have to say the whole environment is very different now in that when I can remember when I was talking to a colleague at work when I set up BCS Women one of my colleagues who was a bloke when I was talking about setting up BCS Women I was setting up this network for women in tech which for me is a very exciting cool thing to do and he said why are you ghettoizing yourself oh, and I just thought sake. what yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> like what the fuck so you know I just had people saying or mainly blokes but women as well I'm saying, you know, I don't want it to be, you know, to be in a sort of privileged group of women, blah, 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 blah. You know, groups should be for anybody or everybody. But, you know, we found that when, well, for example, when I set up the group, I had some people saying, well, why aren't you setting up a group for men in computing? You know, and it's just like, well, I'm setting up a group for women in computing. You set up a group for men in computing. I'm and silent screaming, like, listeners. I'm silent screaming. It's, it's, but it's such basic stuff, right? It's so basic. But just kind of getting all of that feedback I just thought why are people saying that I don't understand what is the massive problem with having a group for women in tech like why it seemed like lots of people men and women felt very threatened by that you know some women said it was sexist so they didn't want to join so I was like okay well fine that's, that's up I to mean you. they can be the cats still walking into a room full of dogs when you walk in and anyway. you can't see anyone like you, and this goes across all intersections and all aspects of yeah. diversity, it's Absolutely. so much harder to think that you can fit into a group if you can't see anyone else like you. Yeah. Where do you even start? Absolutely. And, and, you know, like it's really taught me a lesson that life is just easier if you're in the majority, you know, and there's just so many things you don't realise are going on, you know, and so many ways to not feel included. So, you know, I've kind of worked hard over time to try and make sure that everyone feels included in various different ways in in different kind of groups that I've run or initiatives that I set up and run well that's cracking more of it although that's still at 20% <laughs> is still upsetting. yeah I know yeah yeah no absolutely I mean and you know now you can say there's loads of women in computing women in tech women in you know python women in java you know that like every single computing language there's a group for women and there's just so many groups for women for girls for different minorities in all sorts of different ways so that's very exciting and, and a massive step forward I think but we you know we're still not there there's still a long way to go yeah and it's still 20 percent which annoys me <laughs> well hopefully the podcast will get more people more yeah. women interested and yeah. it is fascinating so as we record there have been two episodes out and my favorite fact that i've learned so far from 100 moments that rocks computer science is that there are 35 trillion web pages mind blown (laughs) absolutely mind blown so tell me about the podcast and why you set it up yeah well so it's just kind of another initiative to try and encourage people to 
to love technology, to love computer science and, and to see how it is a kind of everyday thing and not some kind of niche geeky thing, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess I would classify myself as a geek, but I just think there's so much out there for people to know and, and understand. And there's just such an interesting history in, in so many different ways. And there's also, you know, groups, uh, again, that, you know, haven't been given the publicity that they should have had. You know, I mean, probably about... 10 or 15 years ago I can't remember exactly I I started really pushing the kind of Ada Lovelace story and various other things you know some amazing people like Sue Charm and Anderson kind of took it on board and has been really really like crazy so you know pushing Ada Lovelace for a very long time and other people and so gradually it's kind of made it into the public consciousness and then you know like the the guy that we interviewed Alan Emtage who's our first guest on the podcast you know he invented the first search engine but hardly anyone's ever heard of him Uh you know and it's just it's kind of annoying (laughs) well it is annoying that you know he should be much more famous than he is you know when I was looking for people to interview for the podcast I was really working hard to find people that are known already but also people that aren't so well known that have really done really kind of like fundamental things and we really focused on making sure that we had 50 50 men and women and 50 50 people of color and BAME communities as a percentage of our um, speakers and we're going to aim to to carry on with that basically so at least 50 percent people from um, ethnic minority backgrounds because I think we just need to not really overtly tell that story but just to to really kind of make sure that we're thinking hard about representation and again all of that stuff around majority minority and how it's just so important to tell stories that everyone can kind of feel inspired by I guess you talk about computer science and now listener sue has personal knowledge of my luddite uh, abilities given my confusion with just google calendar absolutely messed that up and it, it does strike me that computer science is one of those things that once we have got these advances like i was there at the beginning when email started to be a thing and also yeah. i was a, a researcher at a, a magazine and using like ask jeeves and all of the basic first oh, yeah. internet searches but we really yeah. quickly forget how the world was before these advances happened. So yeah, it, yeah, for me, it does seem like computer science is basically just witchcraft that I have accepted into my <laughs> life. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but why, why do you think it is so key that the laywoman and layman understands actually what it is? Well, you know, like technology is all around us these days in just in so many different ways. Anything you think of, you know, from like how your car works to your washing machine, there's kind of software and hardware and everything now. And I just think that we don't all need to understand all of the kind of nitty gritty bits of everything and to all be computer scientists. So, you know, that's that's not what we want, really. What we're aiming for is to help people understand how some of the thing work, things work in computer science what some of the more interesting stories are i think if you do understand things to a certain reasonably basic level it really helps you to understand what's going on in the world Mm -hmm. in lots of different ways 
there's software everywhere. Artificial intelligence is making a massive impact, social media on our all of our lives today. And I just think having a, a reasonable understanding of what's going on is, is of critical importance to everybody to help them understand what is actually happening in the world. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. There's a, a fact that I learned again from your cracking yeah. podcast, and that is yeah. that internet currently reaches around 60% of the global population. Do you think that access to computers and the internet is a basic human right now? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'd, I'd say so if that's possible. We can't yet still reach everybody in, in lots of different countries, right? So, you know, that's, that's down to political situations a lot Absolutely, of the time in different yeah. countries, right? But in terms of populations, you know, like the UK, which of of course um, we're used to, and other countries which have got reasonably widespread internet access, yeah, it is a a basic human right now. You know, like being able to to read, we all need to be able to understand the basics of technology and have access to, to all of that learning which is out there. I remember being at school, I'm from a working class background like yourself, and you would be like told to go and look stuff up in the encyclopedias. We didn't own encyclopedias. No, no, we didn't. They were for posh people. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And I think this past year and a bit with lockdown and kids having to homeschool and people working from home, there's been almost an assumption that everyone's got access to the internet and everyone's got access to computers which makes me think that it is now that basic human right because we don't really have libraries or internet cafes anymore so people will need to have them in their home if this gap this learning gap isn't to get any bigger yeah yeah absolutely I mean like when we first went into lockdown I was trying really hard with other um, people to try and work out how to get access for particularly kids who didn't have computers at home I was chatting to someone who runs a charity in Newcastle and she was saying that on some estates in Newcastle because I'm at Durham so that you know that's the area that I've been talking to people about she was saying that you know there's a very small amount of people that have actually got wi-fi mm-hmm. on what you know the biggest council estates in in newcastle which i'm sure is very similar to, to the rest of the country and that lots of kids might be in a family where there's one mobile phone you know like one parent's got a mobile phone and the kids haven't because they can't afford it and almost no one's got wi-fi and so you know i was having conversations with people to try and work out well what can we do about that and actually it's really complicated you'd think it would be reasonably easy and it's the sort of thing i just feel like should happen and i think probably by now i know there's an organization i can't remember the name of it where various people have got together to to work on trying to provide devices and wi-fi or you know some kind of data allowance uh, particularly for kids uh, coming from sort of disadvantaged backgrounds. But, you know, we should have done so much more, so much more quickly. You know, yeah. I've got friends that live in um, Hong Kong, and as far as I can tell, they don't seem to have the same sort of issues. You know, like schools very quickly transition to, to online learning, whereas in the UK, we, we're just much too slow, I think. Yeah, definitely. That whole oh, 
oh, oh, uh, fiasco, which Marcus Rashford obviously fixed with all the free school dinners. Yeah. And just the yeah. litany of shit from people going, oh, they need to get rid of their phone contracts. That's probably the way the kids are accessing the internet. Oh, it's no. so short-sighted. Oh, yeah, 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 no, completely. Absolutely. No, it is totally a basic human right. You know, and if we want our kids to feel connected to what's going on in the world, well, and you know, and parents, everybody, really, then, you know, we should help everyone to, to have that access. You know, it's not rocket science and it's not that expensive compared to what the long-term effects might be. We're not going to end on that negative note. There is, <laughs> there is also hope in your podcast because, I mean, if you yeah. can get a Luddite like me, and like I said, Sue's got experience with me on this one, to be really interested and to have learned things so quickly, then I think it's, it's an excellent resource. So where can people find the podcast, please? The podcast 100 Moments That Rock Computer Science is available on all major uh, podcast platforms or at 100 Moments CS on Twitter or find me, Sue Black, 100 Moments. I'm sure you'll, you'll be able to Google that and I'll probably come up on that too. Amazing. And as I hinted at the intro, Sue, you are a woman with her fingers in a lot of pies. So what yeah. else are you up to and where can people find out about it? Sure. Well, I'm at Dr. Black on Twitter or Sue Black on LinkedIn. And I'm based at Durham University now, but I'm doing various things. I mean, uh, I set up Tech Mums nearly 10 years ago now, uh, and that's still going. So if you, you can search Tech Mums on Twitter, online in general. Also, we've got a program called Tech Up Women, teaching tech skills and helping women, particularly from underserved uh, backgrounds, into tech careers. So uh, we've been running that to great success uh, at Durham what else i'm always doing so many things we're about to uh work on some um boot camps some tech boot camps and um oh loads of things around it just uh <laughs> too many things to mention I'll, there'll be loads of things i'm like oh i didn't mention that oh my goodness but it's always stuff around improving people's lives through technology trying to change the world amazing well thank you i appreciate it i'm i'm very much wanting to be in your ghetto so that's that's where i'm gonna be <laughs> Sue, thank you so, so much for chatting to me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Mickey. Hey there, listener. If you've often found yourself wondering what else we're getting up to besides interviewing top women for your listening pleasure, you are in luck. We've revamped our newsletter, now known as the Bush Telegram, see what we did there, which we'll be taking it in turns to write. So now you can read all about what books Mick's had a nose in, what Hannah's been watching, and what food substance I've been picking out of my daughter's ear. To subscribe, go to standardissuepodcast.com, and if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you will find a little box to whack your email in. And to be honest, no one would give me a Noel Edmonds watch column. So this has worked out rather well. Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined by Kaylee Linares from Gibraltar for Yes and No More Shame to talk about tomorrow's big referendum in Gibraltar. Thanks very much for joining us, Kaylee. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is actually a delayed referendum, isn't it? Initially supposed to be held in 2020, but oh, we all know what happened in 2020. How was that when that date was put back? Is it Was that better for you or worse for you? Was it, oh, we've got more time to gear up or is it come on, we just want to get this done? So when it was cancelled, it felt like we were running about 100 miles an hour and it felt like we went straight into a wall. But having had a year and three months to reflect, we think that we've been able to use it to our advantage. The advantages of having a do-over means that we've been able to evaluate where we've been strong and where we've been weaker. 
we've been able to gauge public reaction so we know now what we can say or what we can't say uh, another great advantage is having a, a ready-made campaign already. Mm -hmm. So I'm the graphic designer. So I had all the graphics from last year. All I had to do was change the dates and things. But I, I mean, it doesn't mean I've stopped working because I haven't. Of course. <laughs> They've been very, very long days um, making new graphics and making new content. And we've had a lot of engagement from younger folks actually this year we've really ramped up the campaign on instagram this year we we weren't on instagram quite so much last year but facebook because facebook owns instagram they improved their creator services which meant that we could post on both platforms at the same time so that's been really good for yeah. us <laughs> i suppose the fact that people have been online more in the last year has kind of they have yeah made people easier to reach although I suppose the same could be said for the other side yeah based on our analytics we generally have a younger demographic than the other side I think we have I, I think when I last looked it was ages 16 to 35 were our core demographic and, and we do have an older demographic as well you know those who are on social media but our main demographic is, is sort of young working parents mm. as, as you might imagine and so they might not have the time to engage with us quite as much uh, because they're busy with their children, yeah. etc. Yeah, that's a very good point. Perhaps we could maybe just stop and explain for people who don't know what the current law is in Gibraltar for a woman seeking an abortion and then what the law would become if the yes vote went through. So the current law pretty much bans abortion on all grounds, except for preserving the life of the pregnant person, basically. We, we do hear situations where somebody is faced with a fatal fetal abnormality after, say, about 12 weeks or whenever it is they have the anomaly scan, and they are sent to the UK for a, quote, second opinion. Right. But it's never registered as an abortion as such. Right. Um, or not in Gibraltar anyway. So the statistics currently are technically zero. If we get a yes vote, there will be abortion up until 12 weeks. That would still have to be approved by two doctors in the Gibraltar Health Authority. So it wouldn't allow for private clinics or anything like that, as far as we're aware. That's what the parliament discussed when they passed the bill. They said that it wouldn't be open to any other body other than the Gibraltar Health Authority. It would also allow for terminations after 12 weeks with no prescribed time limit per se in emergency circumstances. So severe fetal abnormalities, fatal fetal abnormalities. This will not cover things that we're being accused of, like um, allowing all disabilities to be wiped out so that that's an absolutely horrendous claim to make yeah us. yeah well we, we spent some time in dublin during the irish abortion referendum to repeal the eighth and there were some horrific claims up on posters around there i mean mm. rage inducing ones yeah um just offensive to not just the women who might be seeking an abortion but just all all sorts of people yeah it's really upsetting do you feel like the other side is playing fair I'm guessing you don't no we feel like there's a lot of misinformation and we actually had to put out a statement last week 
the statement was basically saying that we disagree with a lot of what they're saying. We we would like it if they played nicely. They decided to respond uh, very quickly after, actually, and keep accusing us of playing politics. I mean, it's not our intention by any means. We're, we're trying to have as truthful a campaign as possible. Yeah. And we would like it if the other side would do the same. Of course, we understand their feelings about it, you know, and not all of us on the team agree 100% with abortion. But we have to live with the fact that it's happening, that we're sending our women away. We're, we're mm. sending them to the UK or we're sending them to Spain. Anyone who really wants an abortion will leave Gibraltar to go and get it. You, you can't stop them. You can't stop the illegal pills coming in. Can we talk a little bit, because you said your demographic is quite young. I have to confess, I don't know a huge amount about the demographics of Gibraltar. I do know it's very Catholic, but after seeing what happens in Ireland, being very Catholic is not a bar to voting yes, it appears. So I wonder if you could maybe, I don't want you to make a prediction, but maybe if you could tell me how much hope you have for tomorrow's result. Yeah, we're hopeful, but we don't want to say that we've definitely got this, you know, because... We've had a lot of contact with our younger voters and we hope that they have registered as as they have been asking to do. Mm. And we hope that they'll actually turn out and go to vote. We know that some of them have been very keen. We have students from Gibraltar who actually study in the UK. There is a university in Gibraltar very recently established in the last three years or so. But most students go over to the UK and study there. So therefore, they have to apply for postal voting or proxy voting. The actual process of registering to vote is actually quite difficult. Um, because, because the online services aren't working as they should be. Yeah. And so then we've had to guide them through this whole convoluted process of download the form fill it in scan it send it back by email (laughs) so we've had to respond to many many messages 100 times over as you might imagine so yeah we're we're feeling hopeful we just hopefully turn out to vote in terms of the demographic yes it's quite a catholic country so we think um we think that the church has a lot of control over what the government does like the government steps on eggshells basically around the church yeah. i think but i would say that most people are culturally catholic rather than sort of very by the letter mm. attending mass every sunday sort of thing of course there are people who are very faithful to their faith but you have to remember that Gibraltar is actually very much a multi-faith society so we have a large hindu community there's quite a large very orthodox jewish community and there's also a fairly large muslim community as well from what we can see, uh, a lot of people of faith are, are favouring the no side. But but I do know that we have some on our side, perhaps they're just not feeling very um, open about expressing their vote, if, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, if we look at any election that's happened recently, I mean, Donald Trump did way better in the American election than he was expected to. Who thought the Tories would do so well in the UK? It does yeah. demonstrate that there are shy voters. They do exist. There are people who are reluctant to say their opinion one way or the other, but will say it at the ballot box. So, yeah, I think that happened in Ireland too. I think that yeah. people were way more pro. Everyone thought their neighbours would judge them, but then it turned out that everyone was thinking, or a lot of people were thinking the same thing. So, yeah, it's really interesting, the dynamics of how people vote at the moment, I think. 
Can I ask how COVID has sort of affected your ability to get out there and do stuff on the street? Gibraltar got away very, very lucky in COVID. Far fewer deaths than other places, although when the Kent variant hit, which was far more dangerous, Mm. we, we suddenly got a spike in deaths. I think it was almost 100 deaths. So they have slowly opened up and they're mostly maskless now. Uh, the adult population mostly is um, is fully vaccinated now. Wow. So they can socialize properly now. We haven't arranged any marches or anything or rallies. We, we had a huge march and a huge rally last year. We had to use the funds that were left in our campaign budget, which was, I think, just less than half of what we had last year. So we've had to use it very wisely, as you can imagine. And yeah, I I think uh, having a rally, having a march, one was not the most sort of responsible idea. And and two, it's very expensive to, to do that. So we decided to spread our funds elsewhere. Like I said, we already had the rally and the march last year, huge engagement, you know, Great. fantastic. But this year they've they've concentrated on having stalls. So we get a lot of public engagement that way. People love merchandise, so they'll come to the stalls to yeah. come and get their T-shirts and their badges and, and things like that. We're, we're not allowed to sell anything because of the referendum rules. It, it's different to Ireland where they could actually sell and raise funds yeah. and put that into their campaign. We haven't been allowed to do that. It's, it's very much like a like a general election in that you are allocated a certain amount of funds and then you can use that. Like I said, we were lucky that we had over half the amount that we were allocated last year. <laughs> so we could still use that because we are actually the poor campaign. Yeah. <laughs> the other side are far yeah. more. They're very well funded, uh, aren't they, from all over the world? very well funded. Yeah. They think we're funded by George Soros. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. They are sorely mistaken. Yeah, listener, listener, <laughs> Kaylee is sitting on a throne doing this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there's been good public engagement sort of with the stalls and things. Our ladies have gone out there. At, well, sorry, not just our ladies. We have a few gentlemen on the campaign as well <laughs> out with our lovely big speech bubbles saying vote yes and, and the date and the home safe legal, which is one of our slogans just sort of walking around Gibraltar and just say, go vote, go vote on the 24th. Yeah, they have been really good. They've, you know, people responded to it really well. We had an event where we we had students actually standing on a pedestrian bridge over a really, really large dual carriageway, which is fairly near the airport and fairly near the Gibraltar frontier near Spain. So people heading towards Spain could could see these lovely speech bubbles and Great. they'd get beeps and you know it was it was fantastic really lively atmosphere okay so what can people here do tell me some twitter accounts to follow any hashtags that you've got that people can retweet and hopefully just encourage anyone who we maybe know in gibraltar who may still be undecided yeah so it's at gibraltar for yes on twitter okay gibraltar underscore for underscore yes that one was instagram was it that one was Instagram, yeah. The underscore one. <laughs> and, and then just search Gibraltar for Yes on Facebook. Okay. Well, all the best to you all, Kaylee. We have our fingers crossed because it's just bullshit that <laughs> the women in the world don't have the same rights that I have. Um, yeah, frankly, absolutely. Because that's what it boils down to. It's just it's, it's part of the furniture in England and Wales. And it's just it's absolutely insane, you know, that you have to grow up 
in a place like Gibraltar, knowing that if if you ever find yourself in a situation where you need a, a termination, you know, there were whispers when I was a teenager about yeah. girls going across the border, you know, oh, she's having an abortion. It's rather shocking. <laughs> yeah, we should put an end to that. And as always, I'm going to plug the Abortion Support Network if anybody wants to... They can't send money to you, but they can send money to the Abortion Support Network. Yeah, no, absolutely. Helps. Yes, please do. Please give money to Abortion Support Network. We know that abortions have become a lot more expensive, actually, for those traveling because they are having to go through the whole COVID testing process, yeah. uh, which I think costs an extra £400. Christ on a bike per person wow and it's going to become so much harder to obscure that you are going have gone abroad if in fact we did an interview with mara about what the effect was for women who were traveling from poland and malta and and Mm -hmm. all of these places still it's it's scary i mean gibraltar from the very few stats we've been able to accumulate from one clinic in spain and from women on web Uh, we've been able to see that there has been actually quite a significant increase during the COVID pandemic because Gibraltar is not immune from things like unemployment, job losses, income loss, you know, that's been happening during the pandemic. Because even though Gibraltar got away quite well during the pandemic, medical staff were stretched, um, shop staff were stretched, you know, all of the key workers were, were absolutely stretched. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Doesn't bear thinking about that, that some people are, are in that situation. So all the best to you. Well done for all your work, Kaylee. Thank and, you so um, much. Hopefully at some point I'm going to be speaking to you about how, <laughs> how the new laws go. Thank you so much. They should be implemented after a month if we do win. So, Wowzers. Yeah, yeah, it's quite quick um, because the law did pass yeah. um, in Parliament. It was just on the condition of, of a yes, basically. And we're hoping for improved services, obviously, with uh, sex education and uh, maternity. I, I mean, look, we don't want everybody to have an abortion, yeah. obviously, if they don't want to. Um, we, we want all of those services surrounding uh, reproductive health care to be improved. Um, that They can always be improved. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we bomb the patriarchy in a jumping-in-the-pool sense, you understand, as we discuss all things women's sport. First of all, the Euros. Okay, yeah, sorry, it's it's not women's sport, but let's get it over and done with. Guys, I don't think it's coming home. I really don't. And I mean that if you're supporting any of the home nations, to be clear. But if we're talking about England, who are playing Czech Republic tonight, as I record this on Tuesday, look, I think we've fucked this. We're currently behind Czech Republic on goal difference. And if we beat them later, we definitely qualify for the next round. But then we also win the group and we have to play Germany, France or Portugal. And I'll be honest with you, I really would rather play Slovakia or Sweden in the round of 16 if we finish second. So by the time you listen to this, on Wednesday you'll know our fate also I really hope something happens because I can't bear another second of everyone wanging on about Euro 96 it's like when Charlton Athletic supporters talk about the time we won the FA Cup it was in 1947 but at least we actually won it which is more than can be said for England in the 1996 Euros atone Gareth atone I don't mean that I love him 
Anyway, you didn't mishear me. I am supposed to be talking about women's sports, so let's crack on. Congratulations to Team GB's Alice Deering, who stands on the cusp of history after finishing fourth at the Tokyo 2020 Marathon Swimming Qualification event in Portugal last week. That was a lot to say in one sentence. The 24-year-old finished the two-kilometre course in two hours, two minutes and one second, which sounds pretty fast to me, but for context, the winner of the event at the 2016 Rio Games, Sharon Van Ruendal, did it in 1 hour 56 minutes and 32 seconds. Deering has now met the qualifying criteria and will be nominated for a place in the Team GB squad, which then has to be ratified by the British Olympic Association. What a hideous bureaucracy. Come on, Subco. You're a massive Tory. You're supposed to be against all this. So, Deering, should she be successful in her bid, she'll become the first black woman to represent Great Britain in an Olympic swimming event ever. And to be honest, I've been following Deering's progress for a good couple of years now and it still completely blows my mind whenever this fact is brought up, which it is quite regularly, to be fair. In fact, she would become only the third ever black swimmer to compete for GB's Olympic swimming team. Kevin Burns did so in 1976, followed four years later by Paul Marshall. She says she is excited to have broken that barrier. Meanwhile, artistic swimmers, which is what we are now calling synchronised swimming, by the way, Kate Shortman and Izzy Thorpe have now officially been selected to represent Great Britain at the Tokyo Games, which start next month, by the way, so well done to all of them. Meanwhile, as Sky Sports celebrated 25 years of televising women's cricket last week, Sophia Dunkley became the first ever black woman to play test cricket for England, which is similarly crazy. What about Ebony Rainford-Brent, I hear you cry. Well, alas, she was the first black woman to play white ball cricket for England, which means a limited number of overs, by the way, played in a single day or less, unlike a test match, which can go on for 12 years, more or less. The 22-year-old was awarded her first cap last week, having already made 15 2020 appearances for England, and that's the so-called fun cricket, by the way. And speaking of Rainford-Brent, she said that this was a significant development and added that from a performance perspective, she's been knocking down the door with runs and runs and runs. But on the other side of the big picture of the game, as players talking about wanting to open it up, her position as a role model is important for young girls. Young girls seeing her will reflect that it's possible to play for England no matter your background. Quite. And to add to that, about time too. That's all from me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, if I could just have the pleasure of you telling us what it is that we watched this week before I have you run through. (laughs) Well, I, I don't wish to be run through, but I guess I better do as I'm told. This week, we watched Kevin Costner... At the time, riding high on a run of late 80s hits and the monster success of Dances with Wolves as Robin of the Flowing Locksleys in 1991's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Loosely based, and the word loosely is doing a whole lot of heavy lifting there, Hmm. on the well-famous 12th century English folktale and directed by Kevin Reynolds, this medieval romp boasts a glittering cast of stars alongside Costner, including... Morgan Freeman as Azim, Christian Slater as Will Scarlet, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio as Lady Marion, Brian Blessed as Lord <laughs> Loxley, and Alan Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham. 
Spoiler alert, I had a bloody lovely time. In fact, it was this film, first seen when I was just 14, alongside Monty Python and the Holy Grail, that made me go on to study medieval history at A-level. More on whether Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, with its improbable sidekicks, suspect geography and terrible economics, would have passed its exam later. Me, I got a C. Hannah, Jen, let's just go for the spoiler straight away. Did you have a bloody lovely time too? Yes. Oh man, I loved it so much that I went to a barbecue on Saturday and I talked about it with a couple of friends of mine who were actually all quite hard-hearted types. And they were like, oh, just talking about it makes me want to watch Robin Hood. And I very nearly came home and watched it again that evening, but I managed to control myself. So in answer to your question, yes. I sat down last night to watch it, put it on right from that sort of faux bio tapestry situation right at the beginning <laughs> with the it's not quite like that but you know what i mean it's like putting on the comfiest pair of pajamas i just fucking loved it do you know what's interesting about the music it's almost exactly the same as the music in bad brothers and it made me look and i was like they've nicked that whoever did that for bad brothers nicked it but it's actually the same um composer which then made me think, how did nobody notice that he's actually just turned out exactly the same music a second time? Does it also use... No, it doesn't. No. <laughs> Love that one. It's great. Oh, well, I am enjoying this spoiler immensely. Good work, everyone. I'm glad everyone had such a lovely time. So, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Knave of History and Jester of Geography was a box office success, grossing more than $390 million worldwide, making it the second highest grossing film of 1991, beaten only by, want to guess, Birds? Oh. In 1991? Mm-hmm. It's Ghost, maybe? Nope. Uh, Silence of the Lambs? No, good guess. It was, in fact, Terminator 2, Judgment oh. Day. Critics weren't so sure, though, and reviews were a very mixed bag, praising Freeman and Rickman, but disliking Costner's Hood, Penn Densham and John Watson's screenplay, and the, well, the overall execution. A recent revisit review in The Guardian by Scott I Hate Shrek Tobias also decries the <laughs> film's lack of joy, which I'm putting down to Tobias not knowing what joy is because Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, is quite clearly a big bag of fun from historically inaccurate start to what the fuck Sean Connery's just turned up finish. <laughs> and I'll tell you who was blatantly having a bloody blast. Alan Rickman. For his role as George, what a name, Sheriff of Nottingham, Rickman got a BAFTA for Best Actor in a Film He Firmly Believes is a Pantomime. Oh, yeah, that wasn't the title. He won the BAFTA for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. But it is fair to say he is hammier than a honey-glazed bait pig at Christmas, and that is not a complaint. Every Rickman moment is an utter screen-stealing delight. In contrast, Costner's performance bagged him the Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Actor. He beat Vanilla Ice to that, by the way. (laughs) I have to say, in his defence, Costner isn't even the worst person in this film. Well, I think it's unfair, yeah. Is his English accent laughable? Well, he's not even trying, is he? Is he at 36 believable as a returning crusades hero in his early 20s? Absolutely not. Is his performance ridiculous, cliched and eminently watchable? Hell yes. Okay, so before we get on to who Hannah does think is the worst person in this film, let's look at the plot. We are slap bang in the middle of the Third Crusade, which means King Richard the Lionheart of England. Fun fact, fact fans, he in fact spent only about six months of his 10-year reign in England. 
He's away in France and the proper naughty Sheriff of Nottingham has designs on the crown. To wit, he is taxing the fuck out of people, generally being a nasty bastard, and getting noblemen lynched by lying that they worship the devil. And that last bit includes Lord Loxley, father of Robin! Ah, <laughs> Robin, who we first meet escaping a Jerusalem prison and taking a rescued Moor named Azim with him. But not before his best mate Peter catches a mortal arrow and asks Robin to protect his sister Marion in his absence. So Robin and Azim head back to England, landing at Dover and walking to Loxley in Nottinghamshire <laughs> via, for no good reason whatsoever, Hadrian's Wall. This 210-mile journey with a 300-mile diversion takes them an afternoon. Where's Norris McWhorter? I know, my cousin Joe is currently walking from Land's End to John O'Groats and she's been taking fucking ages. I'm like, <laughs> what are you playing at, Joe? I want that money back from you, GoFundMe. It seems like no effort at all. Alas, Robin's joyous return home is ruined by finding his dad dead and his land nabbed by Nottingham. Also, in rescuing a small boy from their clutches, he's killed a couple of Nottingham's men, putting him right on the wanted list. And so, after a stonking waterfall battle with John Little, Robin decides that actually he's best to lead the forest-dwelling outlaws mm. in taking back what's theirs. Brick. Well, it's, it's his mainly, but the backup is useful. His merry band of tosspots is eclectic, including Little John, Robin's half-brother but you don't know it yet, Will Scarlet, a stocky chap named Bull, a little Weasley one with no name, Wolf, an actual child, Mike Machane, a woman, and Elmo from Brushstrokes. He's also rabies in Maid Marian and her merry men. Just FYI. He is also rabies in Maid Marian. He clearly like really got into the swing <laughs> of it here and decided to carry it forward. He had a costume and he just turned up in it. It like does, in, it does look interview. quite similar, That's actually. That's not the word. Audition. <laughs> Raising the question why medieval peasants chose to live in huts made from straw, mud and actual shit, they quickly erect a stunning Swiss Family Robinson series of Airbnbs in the trees and start robbing the wealthy passing through Sherwood Forest. Marion comes over to look at Robin's arsenal of weapons, willing men and captured treasure and develops the raging horn for our hero. Nottingham is not happy about any of this, which is glorious news for us, the viewer. And having failed to get anyone to turn Robin in for the ever-increasing reward, he listens to his terrifying friend, the witch, hires a load of extras from Braveheart, sets fire to Medieval Land Forest Adventure theme park, and captures a load of Robin's men to be hanged. Oh, and he also decides to get hitched to Marion, cousin of King Richard, so he can make an heir to the crown. Marion's not happy, Robin's not happy, and it is not looking good for the good guys because Will Scarlet's been captured and he is happy to play turncoat. Or is he? Mm. Turns out he believes in Robin. And so an incredible, and trust me, I really, really mean that word, plan to rescue everyone is hatched and setbacks be damned, succeeds. Hooray, a wedding. Hello, Connery. Cue Brian Adams. The end. Terrific. God, what fun. <laughs> what immense fun. Now, now you say like uh, that Rickman is like he's in a pantomime, but I have to say McShane, or Mike McShane, that is, who's playing Friar Tuck, and Geraldine McEwen, who is playing Mortiana. The witch, yeah. 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 Both of them are having the time of their fucking lives as well. There's a bit where Mike Shane says something and I'm like, it is directly from an episode of Whose Line Is It Anyway? 
Yeah. Well, it's funny you should say that. One of the reasons I love this is because, you know, it's very familiar to me from when I was a kid. It's also a lot of fun. It's infinitely quotable. But one of the things that I really like about it is the amount of background stuff that goes on that then just makes me think of Python and then more recently of Horrible Histories. There's so much stuff. I've actually written a, a few things down that are shouted from the background. He's stealing the sheriff's horse. <laughs> of course, the best one is... God bless you, Fanny. (laughs) I don't know whether it's knowing on their part. I don't know whether that stuff is actually put in there, you know, because it is quite camp and quite funny to have stuff like that in there. You'd hope so, Um, right? I mean, the worst person in it is by a hundred miles Christian Slater. Christian Slater is insufferably bad in this. His accent Uh, is, because I think he does actually attempt an English accent. uh, It does, and it's appalling. You'd barely know it. Fuck me, they did it. But there's the scene in it where he start where he comes back and he starts telling Robin, Robin of the Hood, that that he's his brother. Is I actually find it embarrassingly bad to watch. And then what's funny about it is they cut to Friar Tuck and they cut to a scene in it, and they both look really uncomfortable. And it just makes me laugh because they're supposed to look uncomfortable because this is a revelation. But I think that's actually just them going, "Fuck me, fuck me." Christian <laughs> Slate is terrible in this role. How how did he get cast in this? While we're on the subject of "fuck me," they did it. It always used to be, "Well, I'll be." They did it because it was a PG. This film. Well, I'll be. They made it, is what yeah. he used to say. I've never, ever heard before a version where he says, fuck me. Maybe that's why they looked uncomfortable, Hannah, with the swearing. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I've got like three questions sort of linked to women in this. Well, if we're going to talk about women, it is really good to see that all the possible roles for women are covered. Maid, wife, prostitute, witch. Glorious. Yeah. Absolutely. But I want to say, like, some points, I do think Robin's a prick because he's like, hey, I'm posh. I'm going to take over this group. Yep. But in his defence, also a feminist, he's the one that tells Fanny that she can go and do it. But I really wish somebody had told Fanny that she's very recently had a cesarean <laughs> and that she shouldn't be doing it. And I'd also like to know why it takes three men and a posh woman to deliver a baby. Does that community not have a midwife? Who's been delivering all the babies up until this point? But anyway. And also, why does like the dad have to leave, but Robin Hood just stays in the room to yeah. deliver the baby? I don't yeah. understand. I'm like, why is yeah. Robin there? That's mad. And my last question about women is, like, Robin is a bit of a prick, but all of the women react to him in that really stereotypically swoony way. And so there is a conversation to be had about, is that a cliche or do women really like a bad boy? I think women do actually like a bad boy, but I also think that women of a certain age seem to really like Kevin Costner at that time in the world. I don't know. I I, I just remember there were a lot of mums who went fucking boo for a bit of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, so... <laughs> I think women of a certain age do also like a bad boy. It's what we're sort of told. Can you tame him? Mm. And then as you get older, you start to realise it's better to like a kind man. That's much, it's much better for you as a human. I think if uh, you develop emotionally in the way that you're supposed to, then that is what happens. Because <laughs> yes. they are supposed to be really young. There's a bit where Marion's talking about Robin before he went away to the Crusades just mm. six years ago like used to set fire to her hair and stuff like one what a knobber and two how old is he supposed to be (laughs) and also he's supposed to be 12 years older at the same time as this he's supposed to be 12 years older than will scarlet yeah you're like well how old's he then (laughs) (laughs) sorry i just wanted to bring something to your attention if i can do you remember because there are a few things that i noticed in this that i've never picked up on before and one of my favorite things that i noticed do you remember 
the pub that we used to go to on Old Street after we'd finished recording yeah. and there were those paintings like possibly yeah. of Sandy Toxfig but we're not like really sure. Or Princess Diana, we can work yeah. out which one it was. And like Jeff Boycott or something like I don't know, just really like random kind of possibly John McQuirick, who knows who they are. There's a painting in the scene with Brian Blessed where he's uh, <laughs> sitting there penning his note. There is a painting on the wall behind him of robin of loxley his son like kevin costner and it is fucking exquisite i've never noticed it before but it is a lot like basically yes that's what i'm saying (laughs) go back and have a look if you missed it i wanted to talk about will and robin so will scarlet very much wants robin to check his privilege right he is the one who keeps going why should we be following you rich boy and it turns out he's got you know ulterior motives and gender of his own but it's such a good point. Robin would rather die a free man than live in hiding. That is his choice. And he is willing to die for that choice. And if that means taking that choice away from everyone else, well, so be it. He is such an elitist. Oh, absolutely. Like I say, he just turns up and says, you're my gang now. I plan to lead you. Yeah. Um, but that's an uncomfortable uh, question. So cue weapons montage. That's how they deal with it. I will say the question when, when Will Scarlet comes and says, I want to know if you're going to like finish what you started. I thought, this guy's been on the Crusades, dude. I mean, I don't think you can, I don't think you can actually uh, question his commitment. He seems pretty hardcore to me. Seems like the, exactly the kind of guy that carries on too long, in fact. And maybe you should, maybe you should give up. On the other hand, conversely, and even though he's casually racist, I do love Duncan. Because he's, <laughs> even he's when so rock hard. My eyes. He's, he's a bit... It's brilliant. What I want to know is how Duncan survived, because he didn't have to live a room in those days, <laughs> how Duncan survived in that castle on his own, blinded, in the time it took for Robin to turn up and Brian Blessed had been killed. I have a question for Mickey, with your medieval history knowledge. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm guessing they didn't have glass window panes in uh, in these days. Oh, there's, there's so much technology that is uh, a little bit anachronistic, to say the very least. Telescopes didn't have those till 1608 or thereabouts. Uh, yeah, so glass, no, no glass window panes. But then how can you burst through it and stop the Sheriff of Nottingham, Hannah? You've got to think about the dramatic effect. I do want to talk about the Celts, which was my favourite bit always, 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 always been my favourite bit uh, because it contains the line, to the trees! But what I want to say about the Celts that I haven't noticed before, obviously, is that they look like Palumpas that are being led by that guy that led the raid on the capital. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) When they were looking through the, the telescope... And uh, Morgan Freeman says, oh, like, Christ have mercy on us or something. He, I he wouldn't have said Christ. Doubt but but, but <laughs> uh, anyway, we can get on to Morgan Freeman in a bit. But um, when he says uh, whatever it is he says, like, have mercy on us. I thought that's, that's what Nancy Pelosi must have been like when she was looking out of the window with her little thing. I saw all those idiots gathering at the door. That's a project for someone who's like a little YouTuber or on Insta or TikTok is to sort of Photoshop in like someone just carrying a a stand under their arm and various things that happened at the Capitol. Morgan Freeman, how do we feel about that portrayal of uh, the Moor? I think he does well with what he's been given. Yeah. Yeah. I like Azim as a character. Yeah, I think he's... And actually, to be fair, he's actually given relatively high standing status within the film he's the knowledge and all of that but without having the kind of 
trope of being the magical Negro. Uh, I'm doing the finger mark so everybody knows I'm not actually using those words, but no one can see it on a podcast. Uh-huh. So I think it manages to steer clear of that a bit, but still he has a position of status. I think when he stands up at the end and says, I fight with Robin Hood, we should all join Robin Hood, blah, blah, blah. Instead of rallying, I think people would have been, oh my God, hit him with sticks. But uh, instead, it is a huge rallying cry. Uh, but mm. again, historical accuracy, not its strong point. I mean, speaking of which, King Richard, obviously, as you said, like very little time in the country. But but also, where is King John in this? He almost doesn't exist, yes. does he? I, I was wondering about this. Is the Sheriff of Nottingham an actual person? Because the actual thing is obviously that King Richard went away and King John... Well, he's Prince John. He's not King John. Yeah, later King John, though, wasn't well, he? he which is, t- yeah. Well, he's the one who is responsible for the Magna Carta, so he fucks it all up, basically, from, from the monarchy's perspective. So, so basically, who actually is Nottingham? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is in, in the fact that he's not in it, this is actually probably the fairest that anyone has ever been to him. He was raising taxes, not for himself, but because Richard was like... I mean, that's where the words the King's Ransom come from. I mean, it wasn't, it, he, he has been much maligned by history. So in, in, in many ways, him just not even being in this is the fairest that anyone's ever treated him. Much but fairer than Disney's coverage of him as a cowardly lion. Mm. Historically, Richard was meant to have been a bit of a bellend. Oh, absolutely. Medieval I kings, mean, it was part and parcel of the job from what I can gather. Yeah. What person who tries to force their religion on other people isn't, Jen? Well, that's, that, is another, that is another good point. I, I mean, it feels like we could talk forever about Robin Hood, a Prince of Thieves, and have a lovely time. Maybe we'll do a special where we just talk for four hours about this film because it is glorious. <laughs> but I am going to ask you the question, rated or dated? Oh, abs- absolutely rated. And I'd like, I'd like some soft focus applied to <laughs> the words rated as a, as a saying. Jen's just getting out of a waterfall to provide her answer. I think it's fucking wonderful. I think it's glorious. I, I, it wasn't rated ever, was it? As you said from the outset, it was never rated, but it's just, it's brilliant. A triumvirate of rated. What a result. What are we watching next? Hannah, I think it's your turn. It is. And as you know, because we keep a list, I've been changing, I've been fanning around. I um, initially was said we should watch Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And then I saw that Cannonball Run had an anniversary, so I decided we should do that instead. But then we couldn't find a copy of that, which then suggested it to me that maybe it is beyond the pale uh-huh. and that we shouldn't be watching it. I agree. Uh, so... You mentioned him earlier, the guy who did the po-faced review of... Scott, um, I know no joy, Tobias of The Guardian. That's him. Well, previously, on the anniversary of the American release of Shrek, he did a very po-faced review about that. And people asked us to watch it. And it is now the anniversary of the UK release of Shrek. So, yes, we're going to watch Shrek. Yay! Not mad at that decision. No, me either. That'll do, donkey. (laughs) Standard issue for all women.